You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and on the podcast today is another live talk from Antidote 2019. Opinion polls told us that the 2019 federal election would belong to Labor. But after Australia went to the ballot box, we saw a shock coalition victory and commentators were left scratching their heads. How did the polls get it so wrong? Digging into this question is Anthony Green, who has spent 30 years analysing elections for the ABC, social researcher and social trend expert Rebecca Huntley, and Bella Stantic, a data scientist who correctly predicted the voting outcome from surveying 2 million tweets. Together, they'll be exploring the problems that come with trying to forecast the future. This session is hosted by David Spears. And while you're here, we'd love you to rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts. Enjoy the show. Well, thank you very much. Good morning. Welcome to this session, The Problem with Polling. Uh, and yes, there are a number of problems we're going to talk about here this morning. Does the media rely too much on polls? Do the politicians rely too much on polls? But perhaps the bigger problem, why do the polls get it so wrong uh, in this year's uh, election? We're going to tease that out, explore where the problems lie uh, and, and why we do need to rely on polls when it comes to formulating policy, understanding where the Australian people are at. We have a terrific panel for you here this morning to talk about all of this from a number of different perspectives. Uh, Professor Bella Stantic is the founder and director of the Big Data Smart Analytics Lab within the Institute of Integrated and Intelligent Systems at Griffith University. He's also the head of school at Information and Communication Technology at Griffith Uni. Anthony Green really needs no introduction uh, at all. Uh, he, of course, is the face of election night on the ABC and has been, uh, well, forever. Uh, he is the ABC's election analyst uh, and his background <laughs> is as a computer programmer and data analyst. And then finally, Rebecca Huntley, a researcher on social trends, uh, the head of Vox Populi Research and the author of a number of books, including a quarterly essay just this year, Australia Fair, Listen to the Nation, it's called, well worth a read. She's also a broadcaster with the ABC, presenting the History Listen on Radio National and a podcast called The Full Catastrophe, a multimedia star. Welcome to you all. Give them a round of applause. My name's David Spears, by the way. I'll just be asking questions today and uh, hopefully not fielding too many. We will get some questions uh, from you as well uh, at the end. We've got a couple of microphones set up, you might have seen, and we'll bring the lights up when we get to that. So have a think about a question you might want to pose. But the one I want to start with, to get the ball rolling, is what is a poll? Perhaps we should start there, Anthony. What is a poll and what isn't a poll? Well, every five years we go out there and you measure the population of Australia with a census. So that's actually... a a tallying of everybody, mm. but that's way too expensive. You can't do that. Um, a poll is an attempt to get a Unless random... Unless you want to do a postal survey on a particular topic that <laughs> might have trouble getting legislation for a referendum on. The math, the math says if you do a good, decent random sample of about two to 3,000 people across Australia, and it's a good random sample, so everybody's got a chance to appear in the sample and respond to the sample, you get a narrow margin of about two, two and a half percent. So it's a pretty good so way two, of So two to 3,000 needs to be... That's a maximum. The sample size. But, but the difficulties are, can you get a proper sample? Yes, we've got the electoral roll. 20, 30 years ago, you could then, from that roll, do 
landlines to houses and then pick an occupant of the house and stratify it by age. And you get a relatively good sample. But these days, the role and the phone numbers do not match up the way they used to because people have got mobile phones and there's no simple register of those. Um, I'll come back to that because there's a bit of a debate around yeah. getting access to those. I suspect there's a little less um, happiness of people to respond to a survey because you're getting so, much, so many other more marketing things. So you pick up a phone call and you get a robocall instead of a person or you're more likely to hang up. So I think there's fewer responses. Um, it's expensive to do a proper random sample poll. It's got harder to do them, so they've switched to cheaper technologies like robocalls, random calls, and then they try and weight the sample at the end. And it's that weighting and not being sure whether you've got a decent sample, which is at heart, what's the problem that's gone wrong with polls? Well, yeah, I mean, Rebecca, is a robo-poll worth the paper it's printed on? Is that, is that a poll? Uh, not really. I mean, I always say they're unpredictably unpredictable. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's the problem with them. So, I would say to people when um, you see a poll talked about in the media, it could be a robo-poll, which what, with what sounds like a large sample could be 900, 800 people living in electorate, but we actually don't know anything about that. It could be a poll of maybe 3,000, but it could be online. It could be a poll of 1,200 people on a phone call, which could also have its own, once was the gold standard, but has changed. Or it could be what's happening all the time, which is organisations will put out something online and get thousands of responses and call that a poll. Um, and it, whether it's weighted or not. So we now have the technology and the intense appetite. We have this mm. kind of obsessive appetite for surveys and polling. We do, we do. And that gets to the, 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 so the could, media yeah. age we live in and yeah, how yeah. much attention is given to that. But I'll, we'll yeah. come to that. Um, we should probably explain, uh, in case you missed it, the polls did generally get it wrong with this election. Yeah. Uh, now... I think there are something like 16 major opinion polls during the course of the election campaign. Every one of them uh, had Labor in front, and the four major polls at the end of the campaign all had Labor in front, around 51, 49, two-party preferred. Ipsos, which is published in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, the Financial Review, probably closest to the mark on the primary vote. They actually had Labor's primary vote right at 33%. They missed the coalition primary vote uh, by a couple of points. Um, but the, the point is they all indicated the two-party preferred result would be uh, a Labor win. Um, Anthony, just, just back to you. Uh, you called it on the night as the real numbers came in a spectacular failure of polling, I think were your words. Yeah. Um, where did the polls go wrong? How did this happen? They, well, there's a concentration on the two-party preferred in polling, which is wrong because polls don't measure that. That's calculated from the first preferences. But there was spectacularly wrong, about 3.5% out on both of the major parties' votes, uh, Labor down, Coalition up. Um, and I was just, just monitoring the numbers on the night at about 7.30, I just looked at the numbers, and they were the opposite. The, the gap was 8%, not 1%. The two-party preferred was around the, the other way from what was reported. Mm -hmm. And I, I just said that, because the result was nothing like the opinion polls. So and not just by error margin, it was out substantially. So how did this happen, Rebecca? I mean, is it clear? Uh, well, look, all the... 
uh, published opinion polls would be using similar kinds of sample, not the same, but would have the same structural problems. There's a big argument at the moment about whether there was what's called herding, which is everybody is looking, we're, you know, having... Let's just explain what herding is. So, say we herding all run a poll. sounds like something lovely, <laughs> like there's cows <laughs> that you're all trying to herd and milk them. But say, for um, example, <laughs> we all run a different poll, right, and your three polls are showing the same sort of thing. I get a poll that says something different, I go, hang on... I think there might be something wrong with my poll. Yeah, nobody wants to be the outlier. Everybody so you, would you, rather uh, be. Does this happen, though? They tweak their numbers to match what everyone else has got? They tweak their weightings, <laughs> I think. <laughs> they could tweak their weightings. Um, <laughs> weightings being... Let's just explain. Well, so, weight, so, so as Anthony said to start with, a poll has to represent the, what the ABS tells us about the voting population. So if you do a poll where only three people fall into a particular age category and actually that's 10%, I'm just making this up a bit, 10% of the population, then how those people have voted, you kind of emphasise that. So, so what the final sample you get represents the sample. So what is... So you have to weight some groups heavier than others and... Um, and so that's a way of... Tweaking. Yeah, it's tweaking. But I think part of it... So there are some people who think herding absolutely happens. I mean, one pollster said he got a poll that showed that Queensland was really, really going to live with the coalition and he ripped it up because he thought there was something wrong with it. So nobody really wants to be out there because the orthodoxy... I mean, there were two main orthodoxies. The first is that the trend over time was just so stably in favour of the Labor Party and the two-party preferred. It seemed to be saying... And the Labor Party was was, I suppose, had a, had a policy agenda that was am, as ambitious... Would make um, Daenerys Targaryen go, wait a second, this is just too ambitious, right, <laughs> when you really look at it. So the fact that nothing happened with the two-party preferred over that time, a lot of people, including myself, said, well, the Australian election... Well, it shouldn't be that stable. Yeah. That's the other thing to say, is that polls should bounce around. If you go back and look at 1995, yeah. the year before John Howard won, in the middle of that year, there was one news poll came out with like a 4% swing to Labor. The next fortnight, it swung back. Now, that was yeah. the one in 20 that's wrong, they which is what you should yeah, yeah, get yeah, with an opinion that straight line. Yeah. If they just run in a straight line month yeah. after month... Now, Bella, all right. the, the, the reason I've had you sitting there rather quietly so far is that not everyone got it wrong. <laughs> you got it right. Uh, but uh, let's have a round of applause for that. Thank you. You not only got it right with this election against what all the polls were showing, you picked the Brexit vote, you picked the Donald Trump win. In fact, you picked 49 of the 50 states. Yeah, that's true. In, uh, that deserves another round yeah. of applause I think, uh, in the US. You do something very different to opinion polls. What do you do? So I basically analyze social media data. So my sample size is much larger. I, I just heard it's about two, 3,000. But uh, in this particular election, uh, I analyzed about two million tweets. Two uh, million tweets. Which is about, uh, indirectly, about half a million unique uh, accounts in Australia. Okay. So sample size is very large, and that obviously uh, gave me opportunity to correctly identify all 77 seats. So in Australia, you will look at the tweets in each individual electorate, um, and with a sample size of half a million individual users across the country, and look for what? What will you look for in the tweets? So basically, uh, I look for the individual terms, policies and everything, and then calculate the sentiment. Uh, so if yeah. they're saying, for example, in Queensland, 
uh, the Aldi, Col uh, Aldi, the um, Adani. <laughs> uh, you can tell I've been on television this morning <laughs> talking about a bag full of cash, but anyway. Um, the Adani coal mine is terrific. We need this mine. Uh, it's, it's important for our survival. Is that the sort of thing you're looking at? Pretty much like that, but even indirectly, uh, there was a people who are saying, I don't support Adani, but I don't agree with the way how it's approached and everything, and then... Uh, and now I'm for it. So people are changing their opinion. Do you have to read every single two million of these tweets? No, I don't read it at all. I have algorithms which I actually automatically identifying a target aspect. So a word, uh, like Adani uh, or yeah, Shorten or Morrison. And a combination. I'm using deep learning and machine learning algorithms. I actually do this selection only uh, to prove that my algorithms, which I'm doing uh, and developing for other funded projects in tourism environment that to check uh, that they are actually accurate. Well, okay, and based on what you've, based on what you've, uh, you, your record in uh, elections though recently, it's, it's looking pretty good and I imagine you're pretty popular uh, amongst okay. a lot of political parties right now. Um, Twitter though, not, not Facebook, not other social media platforms? Uh, I use other social media, even Chinese social media, Weibo, because of tourism, Great Barrier Reef, uh, uh, yeah, 80% of tourists are from China. They don't use Western social media. But Facebook, uh, we don't rely because you can access only public uh, Facebook pages, which owners have right to edit, uh, hide certain comments, so it's not much valuable. So we don't use it at all. And you did uh, an interview in the final week of the campaign, a couple of days before Election Day, yeah. with um, a newspaper. Is that right? To say what your findings show, but you didn't yeah. want this published. Yeah. So uh, I basically, about two months ago, I identified uh, uh, and uh, I publicly announced uh, that uh, coalition will stay in power. But I was asked to give exclusive interview on Thursday before the election for news.com.au. And uh, I gave it on Thursday. And, uh, but I requested uh, that interview is not published until Saturday midday. Why was that? Why didn't you want to I published? didn't want to influence election because all my predictions are picked up very fast by media. By 6 o'clock already, Al Jazeera, CNN, and uh, uh, others already contacted me to give an interview. And I know from past, and uh, uh, that would probably uh, change mind of some people. I didn't want to influence election. I requested not to be released until midday by uh, when the media picked up, it was already... It doesn't seem to stop anyone else, though. Uh, you know, plenty of polls out there during an election. I mean, Rebecca, what do you think about that point? Um, holding off data like that while an election is still underway? Um, yeah, no, it's like holding, like sweeping back the tide. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've often said that I wish that there was less research and more yeah. thoughtful research, and I also think... I want a, a, not a cynical but a sceptical media and public when we look at data. And I suppose I go back to a very fundamental thing, which is, the, which is while Bella's track record of prediction is extraordinary, the rest of us, whether we're, you know, whether we're political campaigners or whether we're um, um, media people, the, the business of prediction is a, tr is a tricky one. Mm -hmm. And I wish that we did it less. And I also think that there is... All methodologies have their flaws, and so there's a sense in which we're kind of looking for certainty for all of this. And we're also looking for a, a sense of, well, you know, 
all of these people feel a particular kind of way, therefore we should do it. So there's some real challenges about how polling and research gets talked about for well, this, democracy. Yeah, and this gets into how the media treats polls, but also politicians treat mm. polls because, you know, they've knocked off a few prime ministers in recent years because of polls. Anthony, uh, prediction journalism, it, I mean, there's clearly too much of it, but perhaps explain to us why it does happen, why does the media devote so much time to the polls? To some extent, it's the one thing that newspapers still have, which is polling data and, and things they can run with. Mm. Um, it probably will be less relevant over time now that long, no longer there's the hard copy which people go out mm. to buy. But still, opinion poll is a good way to get a headline. Um, mm. It used to be treated 20 years ago much more as a, a deliberate every fortnight we publish a news poll. It's increasingly been used to sell headlines on newspapers, which is, I think, another reason why they really wanted to move towards having a more stable poll, because they didn't want to be doing headlines based on random samples. Remember, in 2007, John Howard offered his resignation to Cabinet the weekend of the APEC in this building um, on the basis of a bad news poll, and the following fortnight, the poll went back to where it was. He nearly resigned over a random error. So, I mean, that's why there's a lot of push towards doing these things. Yeah. And, and Kevin Rudd always complains that in 2010, he was knocked off uh, by Julie Gillard and the Faceless Men based on one uh, and poll. Actually, the funny thing that week was, if you read Dennis Shanahan the days before, he was saying, another bad news poll and Kevin Rudd will be out. It wasn't a bad news poll, and it was sort of probably delayed the challenge for a day while they all decided whether to yeah, go or not. There's probably a whole lot of other reasons yeah. why they wanted <laughs> But I will say about um, what's happened in polling recently is people like Nate Silver. Mm. Well, Nate did. Nate, Nate was using the polls on a more disaggregate basis. Let's just explain who Nate, Nate Silver is. Yeah. He started to model um, election results, presidential election results, and very successfully picked Obama in 2008 and 2012 on the basis of instead of looking at the national polls, look at the state polls, and use the presidential um, college vote to predict he was going to win. And in 2012, he got 50 states right. Now, one of them was Florida. The prediction was 52% as a probability, which means it was a coin toss. People confuse probability percentages mm. with raw percentages. They're completely different functions, and people should never publish probabilities, in, in my view, because it just confuses people. But the second one, in 2016, his probability for Trump was about 70% based on the state polls. That is not a level of probability to call. If this was a repeatable event, like you're betting odds or evens on a, on a table, you can use that 70% reliably, because on average you'll get 70%, you'll get a profit. But if it's a one-off event like a presidential election, a 70% level of probability is not nearly good enough to call an election. What about, Rebecca, I was gonna ask you about the political parties here, I mean, mm. you know, the media clearly uh, have shifted to too much reliance on polls to sell papers and, and all that. But political parties, perhaps we can just tease out what they do and why they rely on polling. I mean, what's happened to the old gut feel politician who knew instinctively <coughs> what they wanted to do on a policy and why? They don't team, uh, seem to do that. It, it's a really good point, and I think there's something larger about this reliance on political polling for the really important case of reform. And I think a little bit about if you polled my children on any one day about how they felt about me, they would think I was a bit of a bitch, you know, get your pyjamas off, brush your teeth, on That's and on and on and on. If you polled them every day. But I hope that in 10 years when you polled them about why I was such a bitch for as long as I was, that they would see that there was a reason why I did that. So one of the concerns I have about particularly when any government is trying to argue for a significant piece of reform, 
that requires attention and potentially requires a level of sacrifice, that the polling can sometimes disrupt that process of reform. Well, let's take the... I mean, the recent election is a good example. Labor, you know, led with their chin on a couple of risky policies, franking credits, negative gearing. What would the process have been internally? Well, interestingly, I actually don't think they necessarily did any research about um, how actually what happens when those policies hit the ground hmm. in a contest with two particular leaders. See, I'm, I, I, I spoke to uh, a, a pretty senior Labor frontbencher a few weeks back about, you know, some months on from the election, you know, what do you think about the polling and so on. And um, we were talking about the franking credits issue and he said, you know, we were all out in... Um, our electorates and we had our campaign staff manning all the booths and stuff and uh, we were getting all this feedback about the franking credits. People hate this thing that we're doing on franking credits. They came back to Canberra, they had a shadow cabinet meeting and said, boy, oh boy, they hate it out there. But they were told, don't worry, the, the, the research, I'm not sure if it was focus group or uh, quantitative, the, the research shows they're Liberal voters, they're not voting for us anyway, it's fine, we're going to stick with this, we need the, we need the money this policy's going to raise. So they, they, over, they put too much reliance on whatever research it was they were getting. Yes, and look, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know whether in fact that's something that you just tell a nervous group of people because Maybe. stuff is coming up. Yeah. And I suppose the most consistent thing was... Politicians lie? No, yeah, no. Well, I mean, and they sometimes lie to each other in the same party. I think one of the things that was really a, a real revelation for the election for me was the significance of leadership, particularly to disengaged voters or people who are up for grabs. Mm. And the thing that has been absolutely consistent and even the most cagey Labor Party official would recognise that, that Bill Shorten was unpopular and, and people thought for a long time, well, at least we're united and it's not going to really make a difference. And, you know, the, the electorate has voted for unpopular leaders in the past or perhaps... Mm. Um, so I think... You know, sometimes we really want to... We look at a few bits of information, and this is a psychological thing. We looked at the polls, we looked at the fact that disunity is death, and in many ways, every single political party was fighting in public. I mean, the National Party were fighting during the election, mm. and the, um, the Labor Party looked united, and it kind of seemed to make sense. The orthodoxy was they would win. And so all of the data that was available was seen through the prism of, well, this is what happens. You have a political coup um, and you have consistent polls. This will be the... So what needs, to, what needs to change? Uh, just, a, also, just one other thing. Yeah. Labor had got through the 2016 election with Shorten and Leader as leader and with negative gearing, and they came very close. Yeah. Yeah. They thought they weren't problems. Exactly. They got through the Longman by-election and won with Shorten as leader and with franking credits out there, and they thought that's fine. I think that everyone mistook that when um, Turnbull was deposed, it was bad for the government. And in fact, in retrospect, it might have actually started the build-up. And I think Labor was overconfident that it had got through the previous elections. And so, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what needs to change, Bella, if, if you were to give advice to polling companies, I'm not sure if you regard them as competition now, but um, what do they need to do to change how they produce their numbers? <coughs> As I said in my interviews, I'm not aware what methodologies they are using, so maybe they are already analysing some data. Because obviously that uh, traditional methods are not working anymore for a couple of reasons. Less and less landlines, and, and as Anthony said, and uh, also, uh, in my opinion, I'm not expert in that, but people say that uh, people are more honest saying indirectly rather than answering questions. In one of the thousand emails uh, what I received after this prediction, 
uh, someone said, this is the proof why we need uh, not to ask for the opinion, but monitor uh, the, uh, the people's behavior. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Indirectly, if you uh, like some tweets, which is directly indicating toward the certain parties, uh, uh, it uh, immediately won vote for that party, and some tweets has a thousand of likes. Very significant. Mm -hmm. So obviously, future is to, uh, at least in the first instance, uh, in addition to these traditional methods of polling, to have some uh, big data analytics. What do, you, what do you think on that point, Rebecca? Is this going to be something we see more of? Oh, absolutely. And I suppose my main interest at the moment, my next book is on climate change and um, psychology and emotion. So we have reached the absolute end of asking people whether they think climate change is real. I think we get a or whether it's important or whether government should do something about it. We why, get, why? Because they keep saying, well, yes, just, it's really yeah, yes, keep, we care, it, and then they vote. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It, it, it keeps being a... Um, it's almost like a, a, a kind of when you hit your knee and you... <laughs> it's almost like kind of a, a, an indirect... Of course climate change is real. Of course I love my children. Of course health is important. How they actually behave and how they respond to the indirect impulse is really kind of critical. And ways to measure that are increasingly important. And that's not to say that, that some polling and some traditional focus groups aren't going to be part of that mix, but we need a whole range of different ways of understanding that. In the end, we need our political class to go, well, what does this all mean about the act of persuasion, right? So, I mean, Bella's work is an incredible diagnostic tool, but what does that mean if you know that Bella tells you, look, you're headed towards a defeat in 12 months' time because of X, Y and Z? How do you turn that around and how do you do it in a way that... Is, is, that, is that starting to happen? <laughs> Are you getting uh, politicians saying, uh, please help? Uh, what, what's what's yeah. coming up? And as I said, I received, uh, even before this prediction, before a lot of requests even from overseas government to help, but I was very clear that I know nothing about politics. This is just uh, for but me... This is what's so fascinating. Out. You're not a political guy, uh, but you've got the answers. I mean, if... if Donald Trump rang you up, and uh, this is oh, not, please. Im not impossible, please don't. But, uh, and said, <laughs> you know, uh, what do I need to do here? But uh, uh, I noticed that Donald Trump had the big data experts because he had Cambridge Analytica behind him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I predicted based on that one because basically he was tweeting that what people wanted to hear. And then I said, definitely, uh, he must have some big data I learned later. Uh, yeah. But I announced that before, that I think that uh, Trump has a big data expert behind him. I, I think one of the lessons we're going to get, we're going to see fewer polling polls in newspapers. Um, I think Ipsos, the nine newspapers, have said they're not going to do any polling for at least a while. I suspect some, a big company like Ipsos, who make their money, they don't make money out of political polling. No. Nobody makes money out of doing these polls. And that's one of the reasons one of the reasons maybe why they've got cheaper and cheaper is the newspapers aren't interested in paying the extra money to get a good poll. So Just explain that, Andy. I mean, th these companies are what? Mostly market research. Yeah. Uh, they're doing stuff for corporate clients. Or, or government. They tag on a political poll yeah. on the back of their day-to-day -day work. They do it for status. They do it for brand. And to some extent, they do it to kind of to prove how good they are at prediction and to play in that space. And then suddenly well, it doesn't thing, work. If it doesn't work, they stop doing it. It's pretty risky to their brand, right? I, I can't mean, tell you how many corporate yeah. clients rang me up on the week after the election and said, 
Is this the same sample? You yeah, why am I spending my money on this mob? They're spending money on things like market research. Are the people seeing our advertising? What do they think of our company? That's, well, that's how they make the money, or, or big corporate stuff for, the, for governments. That's where they make the money, not from a public poll. I mean, and as you know, political polls matter. They matter to how the media view the policy debate. They matter to how the policy debate is formulated. Policy ideas themselves get put through the machine and tested. So there needs to be a, a more accurate way of measuring what's going on. I mean, what, what do you see as the future? Uh, to me, I mean, it's the fact that the Labor Party's pollster, pollsters were probably giving them the wrong information, which in terms of input to the political system is the bigger issue, um, is that their own internal stuff was perhaps wrong. Uh, were they making decisions on leaders and on policies based on dud research? Um, that's, that's where, if there's a problem with polling, the bigger issue. In terms of, yeah, maybe public perceptions and a lot of us who were using the polls end up looking a bit silly because they were wrong. Um, in some senses, that's only a small part of any problem in polling. And the real, if that is being repeated in other research, that's much more concerning. One of the, uh, there's one of the most in interesting moments in my years as a researcher. Um, I brought together all of these kinds of normal people in a panel to talk to all these, you know, um, leaders of government and industry about what they would be prepared to, how they felt about climate and all the rest of it. And they were all asking me these questions about, well, what if we did this, how would you feel, and all the rest of it. And one guy in the middle just said, oh, for God's sake, I'm just a school teacher. I don't know the answers to this. Why don't you come up with a plan and convince me? Stop asking me what I think all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was really a moment where there is a limit to how much asking people a direct questions about stuff really gets to the heart of how they actually feel. And I realise that sometimes that, that political parties are, are desperate, particularly at a time of their um, lowering primary vote and a time of, I suppose, political uncertainty, the rise of populism, all of the rest of it, where they think the answer is going to be in the polling. Um, they're going to tell us what we've got the permission to do and not to do, and I think it's a far more complicated. The answers aren't that easy, but I remember this guy just being so annoyed that all these powerful, intelligent people were asking him a question about what he thought, and he just pushed back, and he said, what do you expect me to do? You come up with an idea and try and convince me, and then I'll tell you what I think. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, th those of us who work in the um, much-derided Canberra Press Gallery uh, <laughs> copped a lot of the uh, flack as well that you're too reliant on the opinion poll. You need to get out of the bubble. You need to go and, you know, find these quiet Australians and, and hear what they really think in, you know, uh, regional Queensland and so on. There's, there's absolutely a point to that, um, but there are also obviously limits to how much time you can spend doing that and how much time you can spend to covering the policy debate and all these sort of things. Is it hard to find the people... Um, are there people missing in polling sampling at the moment, uh, either here or indeed when we look at what happened with Trump? I think that's right, and I think that Bella may have a, a better chance of finding those people, not necessarily in the people who tweet, but the people who might like the tweets and yeah. amplifying out of those kinds of people. So we are definitely missing in, 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 in advanced democracies like Australia and um, America, we're missing people living out of cities, we're missing people who perhaps haven't gone past um, uh, secondary education, um, and we're... And, and why are they are, being missed in polling, technically? Well, there's I mean. a couple of things. It may be that they're not actually getting recruited onto the panel. Um, it may be that they don't spend a lot of time... They just don't want to do that. And when they're on the panel, if they have a choice between answering a question about toilet paper 
for points and answering questions about politics. They might want to have absolutely nothing to do with politics. So they may never, ever... Oh, because really, of the really. general switch off with politics. Totally disengaged. Yeah. But they might get angry enough if a Donald Trump is there saying the things they want to turn out to an election. Um, so in, in the United States, you have both a... You know, you, have, you understand how people might vote as a response to polling, and then you have a turnout algorithm that we were talking about before that's based on who turned out last yeah. time, which isn't always what's going to happen. And not an issue here with compulsory voting, but, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to add that there is a lot of silent people, actually, which I pick up. They never tweet, but they just stick likes. And uh, these methods uh, with social media analysis and the big data analytics. And are you able to say, them up at, are they the, the, the sort of people we're talking about? Yeah, here? I think that those people who are not answering polls, who are not commenting, but sometimes uh, ticking the likes, I identify a significant number of people who don't have, uh, never tweet, but they have a lot of likes. Yeah. And they are picked up with this one. And Looking when you do focus groups, you have to tell them we're going to do a focus group on politics. So if you had a choice between beer tasting, <laughs> I'm going to do a focus group. I would do beer tasting, chocolate bar tasting, or talk about politics. See, even I'd find that hard enough. <laughs> so, um, you know, so there's that. So it's about who is opting yes. in for these measurements and how else do we find them and how else do we indicate how they feel, what they feel. And, um, you know, if you, while the, it's really interesting to see where the differences were in terms of the aggregate of the polling and where things landed in the states in Australia. The most extreme example of the error was in Queensland at 6%, the most regional state in New South Wales. A lot of issues in, in Australia, a lot of issues playing out. But the second was um, WA at about 4.3%, and the least regionalised. Um, state, so Queensland and, I'm oh, sorry, um, New South Wales and um, Victoria, less of a margin. So there is something there about um, people living out of cities who feel disengaged, feel that politics, the centre isn't representing them, not likely to, um, to be involved in any of this surveying or panel, but when they get to the ballot box, they're pretty angry. The ballot box for some people is a finely, it's like a calligraphy pen, for other people it's a mallet that they want to hit the political system over the head with. And in the focus groups I do, very rarely when you meet these people, you know, you get, you get a sense of the, the sense of um, anger, disengagement. Yeah. I just want to add, uh, you mentioned about uh, uh, lie, fake uh, posts and everything. Yeah. There's a significant amount of uh, this fake news. Even this election, there was a apparently post and about a death. The death tax. Yeah. yeah. So the, and, uh, but uh, my algorithm uh, are, are able to identify which are real. What did you find on... Uh, so you can look at what, uh, what's being tweeted about the so-called death tax that was never yeah. a Labor policy. Yeah. Did that get a lot of traction? Uh, it, it did, but uh, eventually you can see that these fake news are usually have a peak and, uh, and they uh, scale down. So my next work is actually I'm developing now actually lie detector for social media. Tell me about this. <laughs> I, I, I We've just, got another hour here. No, what's, yeah. the, what's the lie detector? So similar as uh, uh, you measure the heartbeat, uh, colour, temperature. Uh, so uh, I just published two A-star papers on that one. Uh, actually, to, I'm finding the patterns uh, when you're telling a truth or not, uh, even in a short your message. Right? So, uh, so hang on, just explain that again. You 
are actually wiring someone up for their blood pressure and temperature. No, no, no uh, that is a normal light detector, Yes, so right? your, your but, uh, uh, When you have, a, for example, text uh, in post or media or anywhere, uh, uh, we are finding the patterns, uh, how, what you are saying, how you are saying, uh, if you are telling the truth or not. Wow. Can you pick irony yet on a tweet? <laughs> <laughs> so it... it <laughs> It's a very quite high accuracy. Yeah. We can identify, and it's obviously it's very easy to identify if someone sends, for example, in this election, it was a account which sent more than thousand tweets in a day. It's obviously not human. And are these Australian-based lie lying machines, or are they I, I, know, in, uh, in I the received, US? Example, they... I received a lot of questions like that, but. Uh, uh, I didn't do deep analysis. I don't have experience. Okay, so we don't know where they're coming, who the no. culprit is. Yeah, but it, it is possible to analyze. There are bots, bots out there that are I believe so. Pumping. Because I don't think so that human has the ability to send 1,000 tweets in a day. And it's uh, uh, all are very sensitive attacking. and It's very uh, quickly popped out because it's very high positive or negative sentiment. Humans are usually wobbling somewhere in the middle. You know. Yeah, look, it, it, it seems, listening to what Bella's doing, that um, right now, anyway, there's a lot more accuracy in this than what we've seen in some of our yep. public polls. It, it, you agree? Absolutely. And I suppose, you know, we were talking about how dynamic it has to be, you know, so what Bella might be finding now might be, you know, you might see things swing as an election campaign happens. And then I'll be interested to see whether, you know, obviously Facebook changed because of Cambridge Analytica, whether yeah. Twitter will make a decision... Um, to change as well, you know, so... Twitter is public, so yeah. it's slightly different. And uh, basically, uh, one of, I, I give a lot of uh, talks all around the world, uh, scientific talks, even now they call me about these things as well. Uh, and uh, one of the questions is related to ethics. Uh, but basically, in this case, uh, uh, we are not concerned about the individual. It's average and it's... Uh, uh, individual person. And, and, and Twitter, you're right, it's a public. Media. Yeah, it's a public. Yeah, if I say that uh, I had a lovely dinner last night here in Opera House, mm. it's nothing privacy, right? No, the, but, you uh, use other platforms to communicate privately. Yeah, so, uh, and if I do this, my tweet, what I posted, uh, and give the good score rating for yeah. uh, so certain restaurant. Why don't hypothetically, at Newspol, Ipsos, uh, you know, uh, all these other companies essential, move into this gear? Um, they are. I mean, globally, people are looking more at big data, but we talked about it as well because um, a lot of people are worried about where this fits for them. And to some extent, too, I mean, the biggest question is um, why are people doing the kinds of things they're doing? So you might be able to say people responded really a certain way to the death tax. So what, what, are, what are the things that are driving that? And what are the, le what are the lessons for a political party ongoing? Um, so I think there's still a role for research, but research is being dramatically changed by big data, and I hope that it won't look the way it does in even five to ten years' time. But I suspect that um, Bella wouldn't like necessarily to be um, paid by all the political parties to, <laughs> to do his work, and I'm wondering whether um, all of them have the money to, to go into this area. But... There's no doubt that they're looking at it and yeah, they will yeah. be having I, different conversations. I think in many of my talks I said that uh, obviously future is this uh, big data analytics that you l monitor, not monitor, but listen actually what people want. 
And uh, I don't think that any company or government will survive without doing that. And in one of my interviews, uh, someone asked me, I forgot, is it Seven News or something, uh, asked, does that mean that uh, certain parties, they drop, need to drop their policies and listen what people want and uh, just say they will do it. And I say, yeah, that's true. Not just to say, but also to do it. At the end of the day, people want uh, actions along what they actually need. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's, then they'll vote for them, maybe. Let's get to some questions. Uh, there's the two microphones I mentioned over there. I can't quite see if anyone is standing there. But um, if you'd like to ask a question, otherwise, I will plough on. Uh, oh, we got one there. Yep, over to you. <coughs> <laughs> Too high. Thank you. Thank you for your comments this morning. Um, my question is um, about polling. We've seen that polling has, um, of late, has got the answers wrong. Um, my observation is that they've got it wrong and they've been left-leaning. Um, I wanted to ask you whether that's a trend that you've seen um, or what your observations on that um, aspect are. Well, Rebecca, maybe to uh, you. I wouldn't say they're ever left-leaning. So 2016, everybody underestimated how well the Labor Party would do in that um, election, um, in this election. So they kind of thought the coalition would do better, and they didn't. Um, in this last election, they kind of... A lot of them said the Labor Party. So, no, I don't think that's the case. The only thing I would say, though, is there are certain kinds of... <laughs> um, exit polls are a perfect example. We were talk to an exit pollster. They say they generally they feel like Greens voters will line up to yell at the exit poll. <laughs> um, and, um, and uh, you know, qu uh, other people will White walk past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but it also depends on where you are. Like, I've been, you know, you go to a... You do exit poll in Northern Queensland and it's the One Nation voters that line up to yell at you and the Greens, you know, the few six or seven Greens voters um, kind of slink away. So there's a lot about social... Um, no, I don't think that's the case. There's a bit of a theory that, that um, the more politically engaged you are, the more likely you are to want to be, you know, opt into a focus group or opt into... But, you know, there's a lot of things to try and exclude people. So I wouldn't say they're left-leaning. I don't think the evidence um, supports that. If everyone's arguing they say Trump, America, it's the yeah. polls are left-leaning. But the polls in America got the national vote relatively right. It was how it translated into the into the presidential college, which was the problem. And the last British election predicted that um, Theresa May was going to win easily and was still polling well ahead on polling day, and that wasn't the result. So it's not left or right, they're just wrong. They've just been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not left or right, just wrong. <clears throat> yeah, very well done. It, it, yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah, the next question. <clears throat> One issue that hasn't been mentioned at all, uh, which is that of swinging voters. Now, I know which way I vote and a lot of people do, and there are obviously statistics about that. But has any attempt been made, or is it impossible in a way, to have people who are in this particular category? I think it's a good question in two parts. Uh, one, uh, are there soft voters, swing voters, who, when they're polled, how are they treated? And then secondly, I suppose, was there potentially a light swing on the last day that the polls yeah. all missed? Well, do you, do you, I have things yeah. to say about that, but... Well, did I, you... Amy, you go first. Look, um, 
we still tend to work on the basis that most people have a fundamental identification with one party or the other, and most people don't vote against that. But I don't think people, um, surveys are tend to show it's not as strongly held as it used to be. And it's not as identified around variables like class as it used to be. And that's certainly showing up in Britain, where age and education seem to be more important than class these days. Um, I think what's happening is that uh, there is a bigger pool there who might change. You can't rely on it the things you used to, and there's a lot more cross-cutting issues. But uh, it's the, the, remember this, though, that at a federal election, there's probably only one in 20, maybe one in 15, who actually changed their vote at the election from the previous one. It's only a small percentage who changed their vote from one election to another. Um, it's still, not that great. Yeah, right. yeah, We're yeah. still all pretty locked in. Yeah. Um, sorry, Bella. So I just want to say, uh, obviously, with this fake news and everything, are these uh, swing voters are targeted? Because uh, if I vote for a certain party, nothing can change. But uh, and uh, in, particularly in this election as well, uh, as I said, I gave interview on Thursday afternoon, and Friday morning I was crunching again the numbers, and it was swinging toward the Labour because of uh, Bob Hawke passed. Bob Hawke died. The sentiment final, uh, that went Friday, to the Labour. Right. Yeah. So that obviously. Uh, on the daily basis uh, is changing, particularly well, these thing voters. Are. Is there a need for a little more transparency in the polls around the soft vote, the swing vote, you know? Oh, yeah, there's, look, there's as Anthony know, there's volumes written about how you define what an undecided voter is, a swinging voter. In, um, I've got, in order to recruit um, persuadable voters, which is one of the things we always talk about as well, into a focus group. I have about seven questions that I ask people, and there's still a couple of people that like to think of themselves as persuadable, but when you actually talk to them, you realise they're only persuaded to move from one nation, potentially, to the Pirate Party. So, right? so, so, you, know, so you really have to be careful about... So you have to do some very clever thinking about, well, what's the seat? Who do I actually want them to? Who do I have to understand who they're swinging to and on what issues? So it is really, it is really tri um, tricky. There's been a bit of a discussion about, you know, what do we do with undecided voters and how do you allocate them? Um, my bigger concern is what we do about disengagement more broadly. How do we? We've been, and I would say I'm one of those people who's been lulled into a bit of a false sense of security that Australians still vote. The informal vote has not necessarily significantly increased over the last 10 years of, you know, um, prime ministerial shenanigans. Um, um, I looked at what happened in the same-sex um, marriage survey and thought, well, Australians like to have their say. But the level of disengagement um, is really pretty bad, and I think the biggest indication to me of that is the amount of people who pre-poll. And the amount of people who say to me, what gets said in the election campaign means almost nothing to me because I don't know if it's going to be the same leader and I don't trust them. And so whether that has a really significant impact on how we measure things, it's a much bigger question about how we feel about our democracy and the level of cynicism. And while politicians and our political class and a whole range of people have got something to do with that, we have to realise that what we've got is precious. We don't want to be a kind of community where, you know, 40% of the... Um, of the population vote, where there's widespread corruption, where there are Aldi bags. Everybody's carrying Aldi bags, not just a couple of really stupid right-wing people in the New South Wales um, branch of the Lab Party. Um, so I, that is my larger question, and about I would be much more interested on going in my... And is that disengagement you talk about, it's not unique to Australia? No. 
But it, but in, it isn't unique to Australia, but I kind of... I'm mainly concerned about Australia. Yeah. And I'm mainly concerned about the fact that we have a lot to be proud of in the way that we are government runs and the, the level of... We don't have people on the streets being blasted with cannons. Is that part of the reason for the disengagement? Potentially. Okay. Exactly. Know. Potentially we're too... You, you, you get really engaged when things go really bad. Turn up goes up when things are really bad and it yeah. tends to go down when everyone's quite happy. Yeah. <laughs> Another question up here, sir. Perhaps my question was answered uh, because I was going to say, um, are the smart algorithms allowed, you know, able to predict, you know, ebbs and flows before the election? So I think that's been answered. But um, if we're talking about, some, and I think your algorithm was able to predict the government as opposed to perhaps something more specific. But can I ask, uh, in particular, maybe then, is an algorithm like yours able to predict, you know, the rise of, of small parties, which I think is part of the. Mm recent complications. Yeah, well. how many, that's a good yeah. question. How much detail do you get about the, the small parties? Yeah, uh, obviously I uh, had to, as I said, uh, I know nothing about politics, but I, I, I'm provided with details, what are the key terms, what are the key players, uh, parties, uh, pr uh, what are the preferences, and uh, obviously small parties. I, I think uh, uh, I mentioned in my interview as well, uh, or uh, for the newspaper, that Clive Palmer, uh, played important role to uh, with uh, several places where he, he got thousand votes that uh, was important to to make the decision. So the, it's basically uh, you can identify the, based on policy if uh, certain parties. Just, uh, just on the small parties, I do a lot of work on small parties and their level of vote and Senate reforms and the like. Um, at this election, um, there was the Coalition, Labor, the Greens, and One Nation. Um, and all of them are identifiable parties. The oddity in recent Australian politics is this vote which has just gone to anybody. It, it's unfocused. It's, for, it's dozens and dozens of parties on the Senate ballot paper that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, 20, you know, half of the parties that contested this election didn't, didn't exist six years ago. Wow. Um, and you're getting votes for people with the name on the party. They're doing the best, Pauline Hanson, Nick Xenophon, Clive Palmer. Their name is there, people are voting. What, what sort of percentage is that cohort voting for... All these Between 10 and 15 percent of the vote for the Senate yeah. is for God knows who. I mean, these people, who have they voted for? Um, it's, that's, that's, to me, a measure of disengagement. Exactly. They're prepared to go one for somebody. Now, their second preference then becomes more important, and that's maybe more considered, which is why we had to get rid of that ticket voting system in the Senate, because that second and third preference is actually more important and where it's going, and most of them are going to the established parties. It's some sort of strange, I don't like any of you, I'm sending a message here, yeah. And then this preference is the more important. It's basically, it's the outsider, and even if the outsider is the insider, if they present themselves as an outsider by acting crazy, but, um, saying stupid things, then we kind of give them fifteen. Know, who someone once said, "This election has sent us a message. We've just got to work out what it is." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another question here. Yes, please. Hi, um, I can't help but notice that the demographics of this audience is, um, yeah. A uh, lot more grey hair than uh, a younger generation. Nothing wrong the with younger grey generation hair. are asleep. <laughs> that, They've had that's, a good that's night a out. Of that's that's out of <laughs> so that sort of alludes to my question around engagement or really disengagement, um, and also the metrics that are showing now to say that, that people are becoming more disengaged with pre-polling and the 10 to 15 percent of the I don't give a shit vote. Mm. Um, so, what are the measures that um, politics or, or any party playing to really understand what is deeply engaging everybody? 
And I think that the element of using tweets is one thing, but most of us here, and I can admit, probably don't tweet. I don't have a Twitter account. So how do you pick up people like us um, who are not on that bubble, um, given that we've got so much out there online in general, to, to sort of hone in on what's really important, to re-engage everybody again? Well, two, two parts to that. Thank you. Um, let's just park what a political party is doing to engage the disengaged. Um, a bit separate to a polling discussion, but the, the question about how do you catch the views of people who aren't on Twitter, does it matter given the size? Yeah, of your basically, uh, I proved long time ago that 5% of data guarantee 95% of accuracy, and I'm capturing much more than 5%. Mm. And uh, regardless, is it grey hair or not here, but I can tell you that significant uh, proportion of young people are very vocal uh, in the social media. And, and why uh, these seniors are more followers uh, and just uh, like... Do you weight the, the fact that there are more young people active on Twitter? Yes. Also, these algorithms can identify the age very accurately because uh, there is an age, gender, education level specific vocabulary and topics. So using the... Uh, machine learning, uh, it's very accurately, you can identify the age. How do you identify, based off my tweets, my age, gender, that, education? Um, because uh, uh, eventually uh, uh, neural networks are learning over the time uh, and, uh, and then eventually I learn, uh, networks are learning that someone says today is my 37th birthday or uh, someone refers to he or she and uh, through this, uh, uh, over the time, this neural network it works in a similar uh, way as human brain. It's rewiring uh, networks and you say something and I say, yes, this is a 37 years yeah. old uh, university educated... Uh, now now I'm getting scared. But yeah, you're freaking everyone out in this <laughs> <Yeah>. room. <laughs> Don't panic. But the bottom line is it does matter if a bunch of people aren't on Twitter, you've got enough that are. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And the other part of the question was about political parties trying to engage the disengaged. Um, Look, I'm not sure if that's the area of expertise for this session, but uh, is, is there a way through research that they can find better ways of, of doing that? Oh, look, the demographics of the Australian population tend to, you know, we want older people to live longer, um, but when we look at, you know, the data in terms of how older people feel about things like climate change, and particularly if older people living outside, living on the edges of cities and in regional Australia, then that's going to continue to be an issue, you know. So there's some issues where the older population are a bit of, if you're just looking at survey data, a bit of, I suppose, a stopper on um, progress about some of the things that younger people are concerned about. Political parties always take a bit of a view that young people are kind of irrelevant until they um, have kids or buy a home which um, some younger people are doing later, or not at all. Um, but again, it's about are they concentrated in the kinds of seats where, that are marginal seats where, um, where political parties are focused, and the reality is that they aren't. Um, so while I'm really, really excited about the climate strikes and the kinds of things that younger people are doing, in relation to that kind of mass action and a lot of cynicism politicians have about young people being prepared to get off their mobile phones and do something, but they are. But I wonder about whether political parties are scared enough of that kind of um, 
action from young people or whether it be on other things. It could be on, not on climate change but yeah. other things. In terms of who forms government, the, the major parties who are trying to get coalitions together, aggregate opinions and views enough to get majority government of some sort, still of the view that in the end it, how voters will behave will come down to what's their wages, what can they spend money on, can they buy a house, it's, it's what they earn and what they spend and the differences between those two. And the groups that are most likely to change their vote or to think about different are those who feel that they can't afford to do things, they can't afford to buy the house, mm. they're being driven down. That's why you see so much concentration on those sorts of issues because in the end, we still tend to believe that most people vote on, economic, on an economic divide in some sense at federal level. You're seeing it a bit different at state level in terms of their service delivery rather than the sort of traditional views. But still, that's the way they view and so the Greens, Labor Party is being driven to drive on a campaign on climate change because they've got a party competing on their side of politics. But are people in the end voting just between Labor and the Greens on climate change or is it making a difference between left and right? And I think that's, I think coming out of this election, that's actually one of the issues which is driving and particularly you notice the Queensland Labor government is trying to resolve that at the moment. Let's get one very quick uh, final question. Apologies for those we're not gonna get to, just over here. Rebecca's remark about the teacher that said, you know, you guys come up with some ideas, I think mm. it's a statement about leadership. Mm. Yeah. And part of the problem with that is the three-year cycle of elections at federal level. Would that dynamic be different if there was four-year fixed-term elections? Well, many well, things there, would, uh, there is in I, New South Wales, and we haven't cracked that nut in New South Wales. I, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of support for four-year terms. I think the larger question is, are people of character attracted to politics? <laughs> yeah. But I will I will leave you with one really significant thing. If we think about leadership in the future, I did a survey of young women in Australia three years ago about leadership, and a big percentage of them said they wanted to be leaders. Um, a tiny percentage that they were thinking about politics and when asked why wouldn't they go into politics and they would say, I'll be judged by the way I look. Yeah. Um, that was the biggest barrier and it was a kind of Julia Gillard effect. And I was thinking, you know, there's not a glass ceiling in politics. There is a um, dressing room mirror, you know, like the ones that are four that make your bum look so much bigger than you ever thought it was going to be. So the question is less about terms as much. It's really about do, does politics today attract people of character. That's the and biggest I, I just um, want to paraphrase Alan Jones, who occasionally will have a leader and he'll say, you're a leader, you should be telling us, you should be giving that vision. And then the next day he'll be saying, you're a leader, you should be listening to what the people are saying. <laughs> I mean, you can't do both. <laughs> Perhaps the good ones can. Uh, look, we will have to leave it there. Thanks for some terrific questions and for coming along today. Would you please thank our panel, Professor Della Stanick, Andy Green, Rebecca Huntley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.